Our scripture this morning comes from 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. While you're turning, just share with you how grateful uh, we are. And last night we had a great time with the praise and worship concert together uh, in the Family Life Center. Uh, kind of a nasty night, but it felt good when we got inside just to be able to, to worship and praise God. And, and one of the things that was so amazing is how much talent is in this church and the people that are willing to share their talents and their abilities for the glory of God. So what a privilege and thank you all for, um, for your ministry last night and today, leading, leading worship today. The other question is, someone was asking earlier, said, you know, will you ever cancel church? I mean, how do you make those kind of decisions? So let me just kind of share with you how we kind of go through this process. Uh, we, we have a facilities administrator who is constantly in conversation with me as we go throughout. The thing that we worry about sometimes is this entrance here. That's the northwest corner of the church. So by the time the sun, if there was sun out today, it's out. It's just kind of hidden. Um, but it is out. I've got good authority that it is out there. Um, but, you know, it gets pretty slick out here. We obviously want safety to be a, a factor, and we assume that, that people will make their own decisions, as, as you did today, on whether or not you want to come. Canceling worship is something that may occur. If so, we'll try to make sure, you know, we post it on the news stations and the church website. You can go to the church app, and it'll be updated and other things. But for me, it is always a last resort. Uh, you know, we might, uh, sometimes we've, we've not done the 815 service to try to give us a little bit more time for salt to be able to work or other things to be able to work. But, but there's just something about worship, um, about being in the presence of God. And one of my, my fears has always been, too, that someone would come seeking to have an encounter with God and we didn't provide that space and that opportunity. And one of the things we talk about when we do worship planning is that our task as worship leaders is to create an environment for you and for all of us to have an encounter with God. It's not about us. It's not about the convenience for us as the staff team. Because, you know, rolling over could have been fun, you know. And, 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 but, but yet at the same time, I was thinking about it on the way in is, you know, Jesus went through a lot for me. And, you know, so I, I want to make sure we do everything we can to be able to worship God and, and to be able to be in the presence of God. But we will take safety as a, a key. If we can't get up the steps or, you know, someone was mentioned earlier, you know, about the sanctuary. The nice thing, too, by having a worship space in the Family Life Center where a parking lot's a little flatter and a little more accessible, you know, um, we may sometimes just gather a few of us around in the Family Life Center and have one worship service at, at some point. And the good news is this, um, Jesus said, where two or three of you are gathered in my name, I'll be there in your midst. So it, it doesn't take 12, 1300. It can be two or three of us uh, gathering together. But I, I thank you for coming. Obviously, we want everybody to always be careful. We tried to watch, you know, the weather forecast to be able to see, is it going to get down to where it's going to freeze? But yesterday, uh, several of the folks from the church, they had salt strategically located, ready to be able to put it out. Uh, to be able to keep the melt, melting process going. So just so you know, we've talked about altar guilds and others. There are a lot of people who do a lot of behind-the-scenes things to make sure that we worship God and are able to worship God. So we're grateful for that, but thank you for being here to worship with us today. It's one of those things when you start hearing this church or this church and this church and that church is canceled, then you're going, 
did we make the right decision? So, you know, um, as I was sharing with somebody last night, these are the decisions that no matter which decision you make, someone will think you're wrong. Um, and and, and that's, that's the good thing is someone will always think you're wrong. I mean, it's pretty consistent. Someone will think you're wrong. Um, but we will try to do the right thing with the best intentions. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where Paul writes to the church at Corinth. He said, if I, if I speak with tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have all prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and, and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give away all my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they'll come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part, but when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to my childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only a part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three, the greatest of these is love. Let us pray. God, we're just so grateful for your love and your grace and for the privilege of studying your holy word. And now as I stand before these, your people, I pray that this would be your message and not my own through the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I love the season of Advent. Each Sunday, we light a different candle. Each Sunday, we, we get closer to seeing all the candles burning, knowing that, that the next candle that we're going to light is the Christ candle, that we're going to celebrate once again that God so loved the world that He intervened, that God so loved the world that He gave us His only begotten Son, our Savior, and our Lord Jesus Christ. Last Sunday, we lit the hope candle and we celebrated that God offers us hope, that God is a God of hope, and as long as there is God in our world, that no matter how bad things may appear to be around us, no matter how bad things may seem to be in our lives, as long as there's God, there's hope. There's hope. Today we light the candle of love. We, we celebrate this candle as a symbol of, of God's love for us. And Christmas, well, love is the word of Christmas. You know, there, there's some hymns. Love came down at Christmas. We, we talk about how God so loved the world. We set up the nativities and, and we celebrate that God was willing to intervene and, 
and live among us. We celebrate John 3.16 that, that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Christmas is about God loving us and offering us this amazing gift of grace. 1 John 4 verse 9 that was read a few moments ago was sharing that, that God's love was revealed among us in this way. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we love God. But He loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. If you keep reading in that scripture, verse 16 said, God is love. And verse 19 of 1 John 4 said, and we love because He first loved us. But if, if we take the camera that's on the scripture and we pan back just a little bit, the scripture of 1 John 4, and we see the context, well, here's the context of that scripture. Verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another because love is of God. Let us love one another because love is of God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. Then we get the scripture of how God's love was revealed to us and that God sent his own son into the world. But then he, he wraps up again by saying, Beloved, since God loved us so much, we ought also to love one another. I mean, when we, when we think about love, if we're not careful, what we'll do at Christmas is we, we recognize that Christmas is about how God loves us, and we don't think about how do we respond to this. It's interesting how sometimes we, we tend to make things about us. Mike Slaughter is the pastor at Ginghamsburg, or was the pastor at Ginghamsburg United Methodist Church. Now he's, a, he's the pastor emeritus and, and is still involved, but he, he was the founding pastor of that church for many years, and it's a large church outside of Dayton, Ohio. But he wrote a, a book several years ago that some use as Advent studies and other things called Christmas is Not Your Birthday. But sometimes we forget that Christmas, Christmas is not our birthday. We're, we're often thinking about what I'm going to get when Christmas is not our birthday, what, what are we offering in, in response to God? When Jesus was often asked, you know, what, what are, what's the great commandment? What is, what is the greatest of the commandments? Because we, we want to make sure, if you're type A like I am, that we check the list off right. And, and there are 613 commandments. And so we, you know, if, if, Lord, if you had to prioritize, what, what would it be? Because there's 365, thou shalt not do this, and 248, thou shalt do this. Can you help me narrow it down? Like, what, what should I focus on? And Jesus said, well, the first one is the Shema. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. In other words, love God with everything you got. I love the way Augustine put it one time when he said, love God, do whatever you want to do. And people thought, oh, that just sounds so cheap. But what his point was, if you really love God, I mean, really love God, you're going to want to do what God wants you to do. So love God. That's the number one commandment. But then Jesus always gave us the second one. Second one's likened to it. Love one another. Love your neighbor. Just look at the Ten Commandments. A lot of times we don't realize when we look at the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, just look at how they're broken down. First four, how do you love God? The remaining six, how do you love each other? Love God, love each other. All of them boil down. That's why Jesus said on these hang all the laws and the prophets because all the 613 laws are either about how to love God or how to love each other. That's the gist. If you could just figure out two things, two things, two little things. You got it. 
Christian love is a gift that we receive, yes, but it's a gift that we share. The question is, well, what does it mean to love? What does it look like to love? I mean, we, we can look at it and I can say, hey, I love you, Dean. What does that mean? What does it mean that God, what does it mean to love Dean the way God wants us to love him? What, is, what does that kind of love look like? Well, Paul explains that to us in 1 Corinthians 13. Paul's dealing with a little bit of a challenging church. You know, there are some churches that you go, that would be a dream church to serve there. There are other churches that you go, that would be a nightmare church to serve there. Corinth, it was kind of a mixture. I mean, there were a lot of great things that were happening in Corinth, but it wasn't the easiest church to pastor. I mean, they, they had some problems. They had some conflict. If you read Corinthians, Paul's letter to the church, it's like, oh, I love you people, but man, do you get on my nerves sometimes. I mean, that's paraphrasing, but that's kind of what he says. I mean, they, they, were, they were all caught up with, with issues, like there were issues between the rich and the poor. You know, there were, there were issues like, well, when we do communion, because communion was more like having a covered dish dinner, you know, you joined together and you ate together, and at the end of the meal, then you would take the bread and the cup and share it, kind of like you did at the Passover, where they celebrated the Passover, and then Jesus took the bread and the cup. They would come together and eat, and then at the end, they would go, and now here's the body and blood of Christ, and they, they would kind of pull it all together. But... I mean, some of the people here I don't necessarily want to eat with. And that's what they began to deal with. It's like, do we have to eat with these folks? Especially those who are more affluent going, do we have to eat with these folks? I mean, one of the things I find interesting, you know, when you go to various towns, including the town that I moved here from, you know, you've got two downtown Methodist churches. There were one that the executives went to, and there were one that the mill people went to, but they didn't go to the same one. I mean, it was just kind of interesting. You know, this is the affluent church, and this was the Mill Village church. And they're only like a few blocks apart. But I mean, we, we don't want to worship together, do we? And so the rich people here in Corinth, what they would do is they went, Here's the, why don't we do this? So when we have communion next week, let's come early. And then we'll go ahead and eat, and then when the others come after they eat, then we'll do that whole bread cup thing. But we'll eat first. And Paul's going, how is it holy? How's it holy? And how is it communion when you do that? How, how, do you, how does that make sense to you? And then there was spiritual arrogance. There was the problem they had like, well, I'm holier than you. You don't have the same spiritual gifts that I have? Maybe someday. Maybe I'll keep you in my prayers so that you'll be more like me someday. And Paul's just like, how do you deal with this? So we get to 1 Corinthians 13. Now we use this scripture a lot in weddings, but if you pan back again and look at the context, it wasn't really meant for that, although it works beautifully, and I, I love it in weddings. It's a great statement about love, but do you know why Paul's explaining love? I mean, in 1 Corinthians 12, he's trying to tell them, look, you're the body of Christ. You're meant to be together. You're meant to help each other, to be you know, interlocking and, and, and interrelated with each other. And, and then in, verse, in chapter 14, he's describing to them, yes, some of you have spiritual gifts that that doesn't make you holier than the others. You're a family. You're meant to be together. And right in the middle of it, he goes, just let me put it this way. You people need to learn how to love. 
actually the very last verse that he has in in chapter 12 and and remember we put the verses in place so that i can say this to you so that then you can turn and find it but it was a letter so it wasn't broken up as neatly as we do so be careful when you read that that you don't go well that was a different chapter well paul didn't i mean how many of you write a letter to somebody and go chapter one verse one It was a letter that was written so that Paul could talk to the people. We put the chapters and verses in place so that we can all find it and be on the same page. But but Paul, the, the thing he had just said was, strive for the greater gifts. And I will show you still a more excellent way. And then the next thing he begins to talk about is love, because that's the more excellent way. I mean, Paul moves to the concept of love, which is agape, that word that means an unconditional, unmerited, sacrificial kind of love. Will Williman, who's a biblical scholar, later became a a bishop, said that without love, the Christian faith can become cruel and ugly. Think about that. Without love, the Christian faith can become cruel and ugly. We can become judgmental. We can become divisive. Love is that which tempers it. It's, It's the foundation. So Paul says... If I speak with the tongues of mortals and angels, I, I, have, I, I can speak in, in, in human tongues or even angelic tongues. But if I don't have love, it, it absolutely means nothing. I, I could have all kinds of prophetic powers, understand all mysteries, have all knowledge. I could have faith to move mountains. But if it is not founded in love, it doesn't mean a thing. doesn't mean a thing. The motivation behind it has got to be love. I can give away all my possessions. I can turn over my body and be martyred. But if I don't love, it, it doesn't mean anything. Recently, I was coaching a young pastor who's new in, in the church that he's serving, so it's not one of our churches. I'll just go ahead and tell you so you, you can quit looking at Ed. It's not, it's not Ed. <laughs> but I, I was coaching this, you know, this young new pastor a little bit, and, and we were talking and, and about some things, and, and, and he was all caught up, you know, like, so I thought I could try this, and then I could try this. And, and, and I mean, everything we talked about was a logistic. It was a, you know, I, I could do, here's a program, here's an idea. What if, and then I could, and then maybe, you know, like, if I just do all these things just right, maybe I can get this church to follow me and love me. And I said, I said can, I, can I give you some advice that I was given when I began in my ministry? It, it was before I took my very first church, this was told to me by a senior pastor at the time, an older pastor at the time, and, and he goes, sure. And I said, the best advice I was ever given was love your people. You've got to love your people. Once they know you love them, they'll follow you. But they've got to know that the reason you're there, the reason you're at the hospital is not because it's your job. It's because you love them. The reason that you're with them when a loved one is dying is not because it's your job. It's because you love them. The reason that you're teaching them the Scripture is not because it's your job and you're phenomenal at what you do. It's because you love them and you love God and you want to introduce the two to each other. The the whole foundation of what we do has got to be about love. Paul goes, love answers the why question. Why do we do what we do? Why do we speak with these tongues? Why do we have this kind of faith, this kind of... Love is the foundation question. So Paul said, let me tell you what love is. Love is patient. 
Now, if you look at the Greek word there, it's enduring. Patient in the sense of enduring. Not, you know, patient in the sense of, I'm waiting. But patient in the sense of, I'm committed to you regardless. It's enduring. My wife and I got married when we were 20 years old. She now understands love is enduring and patient. She's had, I mean, we've learned that lesson with each other, but love is when I care enough about you that I'm willing to endure even in the bad times. I think it's exactly then why Paul says in Romans 5.8 that God proves his love for us in this way and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's an enduring, patient love. That It's not a love that says as long as you do everything that I say, and the way I want you to do it, then I will love you. It's why when we do the vows at weddings, we go, it's for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish. Why? Because it's got to be enduring. To make this work, love has to be enduring. Love is patient. Enduring love. Doesn't give up. Love is kind. And it doesn't mean to say please and thank you, although that's kind and that's great. But actually the Greek word behind it means to act benevolently. It's an action word. Love is kind, meaning it does something. That, that, that our love does something. It's not just an emotion. It's not just a, you know, he's so kind, he's so sweet. He acts in the name of and on behalf of Jesus Christ. That's love. And then Paul goes, and let me tell you what it's not, because sometimes it's easier than going, let me describe what chocolate is. It's easier to go, let me tell you what chocolate is not. So Paul goes, here's what love is. It's patient and kind, but let me tell you what love is not. Love is not envious. It's not jealous. It doesn't covet. You know, covet makes the top 10 list, you know, of, of Exodus 20, of God's top 10. It, it's right in there because there, there's something about coveting that begins to say, I'm more important than you are. Mark Carter here, he didn't, I didn't ask him if I could do this, and I actually just thought of it, so I'll go for forgiveness. Mark's got some really nice guitars, right? And so, here's coveting. Instead of me being able to go, Mark is a phenomenal guitarist. I love to hear him play. And what's really interesting is he has different guitars that give different sounds. And it's amazing to see what he's able to do with that. I love to listen to him play. Coveting is when I go, I want that guitar. I will have that guitar. Whatever it takes. That guitar will be mine. All of a sudden, I don't care about him. You, do you see how it all changed to me? I, want, I will have, it will be mine. It's no longer love for him. It's no longer appreciation for him. It's about me. That's why Niebuhr said the original sin is self-interest. It's exactly what Satan tries to do with Adam and Eve in the garden and says, why aren't you eating of that tree? Oh, you, you know. God knows. If you eat of that tree, you'll be like God. Huh. So I don't have to worship God. I can be God. Looks good to me. You see, Paul says, let me tell you what it's not. It's not envious. It's not boastful. 
It's, it's not about our, our self. It's about loving others. And when, when we hear the word I too much, we might want to look at this love as not boastful. Love is about the other. God so loved the world. God's love was about us. Our love is to be about God and to be about others. Love is not, Paul said, arrogant, which some of your translations will actually say, because I actually love the, it's not puffed up. It's not puffed up or rude. And the, the Greek for rude is more of to act unbecomingly. You know, in other words, you're going to act like Jesus. It was Gandhi who shared one time that he loved learning about Jesus. What he couldn't understand was why the followers of Jesus were not more like Jesus. To act unbecomingly. So Paul goes, love does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable. And I love that because when we read it, sometimes in the English language, we hear that and we think, you know, well, they're irritable. Now, that's it means to stir. The Greek word here means to stir up, meaning to irritate. You know, in other words, the love is not one who tries to stir something up all the time. There are some people who have that gift. They're always wanting to stir up something. Some of them are in our extended family. That's what makes Thanksgiving and Christmas so much fun. I'm glad you're hearing the sarcasm in here. Because you know how there are some people who just seem to enjoy stirring something up. And that's what the, he, the Greek word here is. And love is not irritable. It's not stirring things. It's not trying to get something started. It's not resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing. But it rejoices in the truth. I've never understood quite why sometimes we Christians seem to enjoy it when other people get in trouble for what they did. It's one thing to believe that the consequences should be carried out. It's another to enjoy the fact that someone's going through that. Why? why what does, doesn't that say more about us than it does them? Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, it endures all things. Love never ends, or as today's English version says, which I love, love never gives up. Love never gives up. So Paul says, you know, prophecies, they're going to end. No need to prophesy when the fullness of the kingdom is established. We won't need prophecy anymore. And knowledge, knowledge is going to come to an end. When I'm standing before Christ face to face, knowledge and wisdom, it becomes moot at that point. There are so many things that are going to go away, but love, faith, hope, and love abide. These three, the greatest of these is love. I was listening this week to the funeral of the 41st president of the United States, George Herbert Walker Bush. I didn't have the opportunity to watch it, but I was listening to it on the radio as I was driving various places, and, and I happened to, to have it on when his grandson began to speak a little bit about his, his grandfather. Some of you may have heard in the middle of his grandson sharing, he goes, you know, my grandfather was thankful for his God. And he said, he once told his grandkids, quote, God is good, 
But his love has a cost. We must be good to one another. Unquote. He said to his grandkids, God is good, but his, his love has a cost. We must be good to one another. And he shared that it was his faith and his love for others then that drove him to be the man that he was. We light this candle as a symbol of Christ's love. And yes, it's about God loving us and giving His only begotten Son. That's, that's the gift, the nativity, God in the flesh, the incarnation. And it's about our loving God. But the Scripture says if we love God, then we're going to love each other. That means that not only did we receive the gift, it became part of us. The gift of Christmas not only is something we received, but it becomes part of our essence. Because here's the good news. Love is patient, enduring. And God has been patient and enduring with me and with you. Because now there's just a few of us in here this morning. And t- I know some of you. God's been enduring. And kind. Not simply polite, but willing to act on his love. God's love for us. That's Christmas, yes. Our love for God is our response. But Paul tries to teach us what Jesus meant when he said, Now love each other, because love is patient. You've got to endure with each other. Love is not something you have today and gone tomorrow. You either love or you don't. Love is kind. Do something. It's not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. Love, real love, does not insist on its own way. It doesn't stir up stuff. And it's not resentful. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing actually breaks the heart but it rejoices in the truth it bears all things believes all things hopes all things endures all things love never ends now faith hope and love abide these three the greatest of these is when you figure out what it means to love will you pray with me